0: JP, welcome to 10% True. Thanks for being a guest on the channel. Uh,
1: Nice to be here. Thanks very much.
0: Uh, So JP, I've interviewed uh, probably about 40 or 50 guests, mostly fast jet aircrew at this point uh, on the channel, and um, some of them have been fairly well-known in terms of their names and their occupations, test pilots, um, famous pilots, that kind of thing. But for most people who are interested in military aerospace and defence who are my age, which is, let's say, mid to late 40s, uh, not wishing to age either of us, Yours is the face that would probably be most familiar of all of my guests. And that's because um, back in 1991, uh, January, we probably saw you on television with your head bowed, um, bruised, uh, and being paraded in front of the cameras by the Iraqi regime. Uh, And of course, you and uh, John Nichols were shot down in your tornado on one of the strike missions that you flew, I think your first strike mission. So the purpose of today's interview is obviously going to be to talk about that experience and talk about... Um, being in captivity the things that happened to you afterwards and and whether or not uh, or how your experience changed your life but before we get into that I'd really like to understand a little bit about who you are how did you get into the flying game and what was your route into the RAF Uh,
1: well most of the uh, pilots you talk to thus far are good fighter pilots because by definition I'm a bad one because I have more takeoffs and landings so that's uh Notoriety is not the best thing to have as a pilot when you join because anybody, I am absolutely bog standard uh, fighter pilots, all my friends, whether they became squadron commanders, red arrow pilots, whether they're American, British, French, Swedish, whatever, everyone's the same. I never wanted to be anything other than a pilot. I don't know why in my family I had no military background Uh other than like my generation, a lot of my grandfather, my grandfather, my uncles had been to war. Uh, and I had no real flying in my family either. But I can never remember ever wanting to be anything other than a fighter pilot. Uh, and so that's it's like wanting to be a doctor or a journalist or a teacher or a scientist you're very lucky as a child to have that level of vacation in your life because it does drive you. You know what you have to do and your focus is, is about doing that. And so that's what I went. I went through school. Uh, I went to a grammar school which had a combined cadet force. Uh, I did test and advance at 16, those who did quite well back in the day. Um got a flying scholarship so i got a flying scholarship so i had my flying license uh, just when i was about 17 and a quarter Uh, i didn't learn to drive until i was 20. Uh, i also had my gliding license and then i did more tests and got a university cadetship and i was sponsored by the RAF uh, through university so i was one of the lucky ones because that just doesn't occur nowadays that level of investment uh, you know, to be sponsored through university just doesn't occur. so I'm the generation that the youth hates because we bought houses cheap and we got sponsored through university
0: and and you have a pension that's worth something
1: yeah, I have a pension that's yeah thank you <laughs> it was now gonna hate me go beat him up because yeah i'm that I'm that generation
0: <clears throat> what what did you make of um fast jets then when you got to them because the the curious thing I always think about flying is that it it looks it sounds like a stupid thing to say but it looks so different from the outside than it looks than it is from the inside you know you consider you can be at an air show and see this noisy smoky airplane go by making incredible sounds and it looks amazing and then you get in the airplane and you fly and it's actually a very different experience so so did fast jets live up to i'm guessing you went jet provost and then hawk yes Um, did that experience live up to what you had in your mind told yourself it would be
1: well, I haven't flown since 17. I flew the Bulldog, uh, then I flew, uh, yes, the Jet Provost, which was okay. I enjoyed the Jet Provost because you it's a jet and it makes lots of noise. But when you got to Hawk, you went, wow, this aircraft, it was like a little sporty jet. And you thought, I'll never be able to fight because it was, people don't see, they think that people are pushing the stick like this. And it's really fine movements because you've got so much air going over the aircraft, you know, covers 500 feet, this way, firing. Well, that's obviously I'm a bad pilot. No, everyone does that where you go, how do I, will I ever be able to fly? And that is finesse and touch. And then after you fly the hawk and get taught how to fly, you get used to the speed. Um, <clears throat> but the real thing that when you do tap weapons and you do things like air combat for the first time, which is where two hawks outward turn for combat go, you turn away from each other for one minute, which puts you about 15 miles split, inward turn for combat go, and you basically play chicken, and the closure speed is, what, 1,200 knots, so that's about 1,500 miles an hour, uh, and you don't want to give any displacement, a distance off or angle off, which is basically the person can outturn you. So you literally, well, the rules say, I think, if I remember back on it's 30 years ago, um, not within 200 feet. But we are talking just like you see on Top Gun. A dot when suddenly <clears throat> straight behind you, whack into seven G, uh, flying fast. jets is better than you see in the movies. Being you know, and you have all these evolutions where you go first time you go solo, first time you do low level, then the first time you do formation, the first time you drop weapons, the first time you do air combat, the first time you're actually do the full tactical scenario because after a while you're not thinking about flying you're thinking about beating the other person and escaping and fighting the aircraft it is so complex it is so absorbing but the adrenaline is just amazing not and i say this respectfully to anybody who's been a passenger yes you feel the g of 7g or what have you and you see them turning and burning and you get the sense of it you do not get that absolute. I mean, if they photograph the head in, in heat, your brain is just buzzing with all the thoughts of absorbing and making the decisions constantly. It's just. Love it. It's better, better, better than you think it is going to be when you're a 12 year old little boy or girl.
0: So, did you have. Look, um... I'm
1: 61. I haven't flown for 20 years. Loved it.
0: I was going to ask that. Well, I was going to ask it at the end, but let's ask it now. Then, so so that sounds like uh, it would be a difficult drug to replace. Then, what 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 did you, what have you done for twenty years? Then, to to substitute.
1: Yes, you cannot carry on flying. Well, you could do. I could have stayed in, but I I would have if I had stayed in, I would have followed a career path. Um, but it's like everything, it does normalise. It does normalize. I lost a lot of friends uh, in my time. Um, and you join as a, a young person in the mess where it's only about you and only about flying. By the time I was 38, you go, I'm married with kids and it's no longer just about you. And I know it sounds silly, you grow up. You can't, You know. You, and that's not to say that you're not grown up as a pilot. What I'm saying is, your life is so much more than flying because you have children and you're trying to do the best for them. And when you've got 38 and you've you been flying for such a long time, you've done everything. You've flown to the States. Yeah, I've got the war stat. I've done, you know, you had done night formation, close formation at night in cloud. You'd had your emergencies. You'd lost... Pre- you have done everything. So in many respects, it's like anything in life, when you start repeating it for the second, third or fourth time, It's not as exciting then also when you go to these places at 38 you're not included you're included but not quite the same with all the 25 year old pilots who are you know absolutely buzzing Hmm. because you're now a 37 8 year old married man who doesn't just go to the bar as a single guy you're a married guy with kids so basically it's just it's not a bad thing It, it life evolves and since uh, when I get the buzz, I decided to um, foolishly start my own business, which is scary as hell. I decided I'd been on such a conventional. I went, so God, grammar school, university, British forces. I'm not denying this was my reason why I left. I'm not denying the forces a brilliant career. And you, but you go. I was really good at jumping hoops. And it's very along a tube. And I thought I could stay until 55 and, yes, end up at a reasonable rank and have traveled the world, stimulating people. But where's that self-definition, that self-determination, where rather than waiting for someone to pat me on the head to give me permission for the next rank or the next role, I'm just compliant to wherever they send me, Um and I'm not denying it's stunning and interesting, but I'd like my own self-determination. And actually along this tube, maybe just take a left or right turn and see where it goes. Um, and so I thought, can I survive off my own wit? Not under, I had a couple of he's very big he's very big names. I would have earned a, a reasonable amount of money uh, who were offering me jobs because I did an MBA and all that sort of stuff. In, in my early 30s. Uh, but I thought, I don't want another corporate sheep pit because the RAF is a corporate, really. Can I actually self-determine my own provenance? And much of that, I think, did come from the Gulf because it gives you, you know, when you're sat in, a, sat in a cell with no choice, you're naked and they're going to kill you. Even a cup of water is not your choice. Mm. You want to indulge when you have choice, use it. And that's where... Since I've got back, this is where I find, uh, I try and explain to people, please don't think I'm a damaged human being. Do you know how much confidence does when all that choice is taken away? You suddenly realize that actually you can still choose who you are and how you want to die, even in that last moment. And that was a pivotal moment in my life. And that gives you a confidence, which is a gift. In
0: reality so so your <coughs> decision then was to be become a mo- motivational speaker is that was that what no you're no about?
1: no i mean that's i know it sounds silly uh when i go to an air force reunion uh, that's the marvelous way people can dismiss me oh you still doing the motivational speech which nicely kind of goes yes you know puts me back in the box and i you know it was just straight like you got shot down we all went to war you got shot down yeah okay you do the motivational speech Yes, I cannot deny I was given a store on a plate. Mm. You know, it wasn't seven years of being a prisoner of war in Vietnam, which is far more challenging and really, you know, these guys absolutely need to be upheld. It's more you go, I mean, unexpectedly, Kuwait got invaded. You know, virtually two months later, the Air Force was going off to, you know, uh, to surround Kuwait. The lead up to war, you go to war. We got shot down, got the prisoner of war. Then you return, and we were famous for two years. You know that—that that is a story. That—that that whole evolution of that time of my life it is a <clears throat> yeah. It makes me sound conceited and self-absorbed. It it yeah. it that evolution over such a short period of time gives you a whole load of uh, uh, a story that people want to hear. So I get that the people concentrate on the. Um, the backstory, but actually, I'm not a traditionalist. I'm quite a progressive. I may have joined a conventional system. Uh, I may be a middle-aged white bloke of a certain age, grammar school. You know, you could say conventionally, but I'm a, a progressive in in the way I think. I'm very much future uh, focused. Uh, and why why would I want to be fixed 32 years ago? You know that's just boring i'm very much uh wanted to engage and see what i could do in the future so um yeah i'm i'm very much that's why i started the business can i explore have i what have i learned in life that i can help other people uh progress in their own ways i i very fortunate. i thought follow, followed nelson mandela on stage in South Africa, I just drop that in as you do. Um, And he said a very wise thing. He said, you know, uh, he said, I wouldn't recommend the methodology, but he said he learned lots in his 27 years. And actually, uh, I would agree with that uh, premise.
0: Let's get back then, John, because we will cover this um, in in detail. And I've got questions around that, as you would expect. But let's get back then to your sort of early 20s then, because you – Did you want to go to Tornado? Um, Was Tornado your first choice? Did you want to fly with somebody in the backseat?
1: I think any fighter pilot, you just want to be a fighter pilot. Uh, That's what you want to do. Uh, What I found through flying training is I was quite surprised. I was pretty good at school. I was pretty good at sport. I pick up stuff quite fast. I found myself challenged through flying training. Uh, It's quite sequential thinking in in learning to become one. Uh, I'm not a sequential thinker. Um, So I found it quite challenging. uh, Certainly in basic flying training, I probably almost got lots of flex flight, which means, you know, they could chop you. Uh, I had quite a lot of that. I lacked self-confidence when I went through flying training, uh, but survived. Uh, so i survived basic flying training i was okay in hawk i was okay moving forward from there uh so i just wanted to fly fast jets i think quite rapidly i didn't really i wasn't a person who said i need back in the day you had the real single seat uh aircraft which are harrier jaguar and lightning god we had one guy went lightning um you had some of those guys who were very deliberately i want single seat I just wanted a cockpit, to be honest. And uh, and so the two seat environment, I did go all the way through. I uh, attack weapons. um, I did okay, I think. Um, And then you get the selection. And I said to the Air Force, anything but Buccaneer. Again, I don't see the point of flying old aircraft. Uh, Forgive the Buccaneer uh, people. I'm not bitter. You probably did the right thing. You probably saved my life. Uh, But I got sent Buccaneer, and I did about 65 hours on Buccaneer and got chopped. But I thought they'd done it wrongly, so I fought hard. Um, And so normally it takes 10 years to get back to fighters. Uh, I was back within uh, 22 months. Wow. Uh, So they sent me. I became an instructor pilot on Dominies. I did 800 hours single pilot captain on Dominies, which is a business jet teaching navigators that's where i first met john nipple he was a student i was an instructor pilot there uh did that and then got sent to tornadoes so had it not been for that delay i wouldn't have been in the gulf because my friends who went straight tornadoes they'd finished their tour and had been posted back as instructor pilots and i was quite a new tornado pilot by the time uh <clears throat> the gulf war was on so that is my uh my background but Yeah, uh, quite interesting. I suppose you've take the mindset with uh, the pilot stuff, Helen said, the moment my wife Ellen, uh, said, the moment you got sent Buccaneer, I knew you were going to, you just, you were so deflated. You know, you just lost your fight. I just had, I was numb, just completely empty. When you go, really? The last thing I wanted to was fly Buccaneer over the sea. Um, So was it lack of talent or lack of fight that made me get shot? I don't know. Arguably, having been instructor pilot since, you know, if they saw something that you say, it's very easy to kill yourself in fast jets. Uh, So, you know, of course, no one likes that um, uh, having to fail something. But uh, in reality... Yeah, I wanted Tornado, uh, and I ended up on Tornado, which I loved flying
0: that aircraft. This this might sound like a, a strange question, but I, I think it's probably relevant to your later experiences then in the Gulf. But you have this passion for flying. From a young boy, you wanted to be a fighter pilot. You start flying fighters. Is there a point at which, and again, I, I hope this doesn't sound like a stupid question, but is there a point at which you you sort of start thinking about the the application of what you're doing to warfare i mean i know you're going around and you're dropping bombs you're trying to shoot each other down but it's peacetime. you're flying over the uk you're flying over germany there's this cold war scenario nobody thinks it'll ever happen did you at any point think well actually you know yeah i'm i i will likely at some point in my career end up in combat and i need to start mentally preparing for the fact i may have to go and kill people I may end up being killed myself as a result of enemy fire rather than because of a flying accident or whatever. Um, is there is there a moment at which the sort of dots are connected between what you're doing because it's a passion and you just are infatuated with it and you have been since a kid and the reality that this is an extension of a foreign policy or, or a country's ability to implement foreign policy and you may have to go out and do this for real?
1: Yes, of course there is. And this is a relatively long answer. Okay, first of all, I was a very naive uh, 16, 17-year-old. I experience more than intelligence, I think, you know, just like many. I lived in a, a market town. I didn't have very much life experience. However, when you decide to join the military, uh, I do, the military does exactly what it says on the tin, and they do know that the, in the army, the first question they ever ask in the interview is, can you kill someone to uh, order? So it doesn't matter what age you're going to go, can you kill someone to order? In the air force and i knew this at 17 and well you could say have you already fallen off the uh, moral abyss by by being able to say yes to that first question but then you say the air force back in the day it was high to the cold war you say can you drop a nuclear bomb to political order so uh, i'm you know yes i'm naive and green as any 16 17 year old desperately want to be a firefighter i walked out onto this was a local cricket pitch i sat there for 3 hours trying to balance this question because it's an impossible question you know you've got the desire that you want to do this job but you've got to somehow justify something that is almost unjustifiable and it was very much the mad policy mutual assured destruction i sat there going can i can i not can i not um my the way of uh, sort of joining the two sides is at the time there were forty between forty and seventy thousand nuclear warheads in the European front alone. So my uh, moral sort of skip around that real difficult question is, if it ever got to the stage, mine would make no difference, which is uh, moral abdication. Uh, and I, for the way I am, could I, you know, if you're under threat and, you know, you're my, if I was in an army and you're alongside me and there's people around for trying to kill me, could I shoot that person? Uh, to save, make sure you die yeah that's i think for my moral framework a relatively easy answer very different you say you do that and thirty thousand people or more die big 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 uh difference to my moral framework so i've probably lost 50 percent of your audience already because you say you know i'm a baby killer or whatever they want to say but you go so that was my moral application in some regards um <clears throat> And here I, I was a nuclear trained pilot. So I joined the Air Force and in Tornado I was trained and my target was a SAM-5 site in East Germany which is a long range missile site that takes out our high value assets. I won't bore you what that means. I did an interview when I was in my early 40s with the BBC. They took me out. They wanted a Cold War pilot so they pulled me. Nothing to do with the Gulf. They wanted a Cold War pilot. And uh, they asked they took me out to the site. I was meant to hit which was about a kilometer long and about half a kilometer while of concrete revetments i mean this thing was huge you'd need a hundred missions if not more on conventional weapons and you probably wouldn't even make a dent on it whereas a small nuclear tactical nuclear weapon would remove the site and it was very much a military site a missile site in the middle of nowhere um <clears throat> i remember then they were asking me this same question i said here i am i'm about 40 i've been fully you know immersed in the military brainwashed or if you want to use that word or into you know accepting whatever can i drop a nuclear bomb i don't know there's questions in life that are just too huge to contemplate until you're actually in that moment you're unintelligent you haven't thought around all these things but you get to that moment where you go you do It's a moral application because there's a gap between thinking and the reality of doing. Um, And in that moment of what is right and wrong. And here I did a a speech recently to uh, some university air students. So, uh, And they're at university. I said, so I left my university air squadron 40 years ago. I'm at the end of my career. You're at the beginning. And why we need ethical, moral military leaders because here I am. So I was asked. Uh, In my very first officer defense studies, uh, uh, a Royal Green Jackets major stood up and said, do you think Russia is going to drop a nuclear bomb on us? And at the height of the everyone goes, you know, that sort of direct question. I suppose so, because that's what you all get told. And in our side, we get our own version of it. and he and he went straight. He said, "And it took ages for people kind of don't believe because you do And he said, "I don't think so because history has proved that Russia has never been outside its borders." Interesting moot point here. And I said, "Here I am, forty years later. So you're at the beginning of your career. I'm at the twilight of mine." Uh, and whilst we have, you think I'm I'm a boomer and you're a zoomer, and we have these differences of uncertainties. Who here thinks Putin will drop a nuclear bomb? And then you go, and if he did, what would you do if it was your decision? Because it's very easy for the, you know, the 20-somethings to look at our age group, say, well, you've just made a mistake. Say, put yourself in our position. 20 years, because 20 years goes like this. In 20 years' time, you'll be that decision maker. What would you do? Because it's not just about Russia, it's about... Uh, balance of power globally with tectonic plates with China, Russia, all that sort of stuff. And what you do and don't do and what they and you just go, you know, what would your answer be? How, how would you answer that, Steve? Well,
0: well, and well, it's a
1: rhetorical question, yeah. really, because it's an imp- But would you accept it's an impossible answer question to answer, really, until yeah. if unless you're in that moment?
0: I think that the the whole the, the the whole idea of it, as you described earlier, with with MAD, is that it would it will never happen.
1: But it's abhorrent, and I never let let me tell. You, I never expected when I joined the military ever to go to war because I thought the Russians or the Soviet bloc weren't stupid enough, and I didn't think we were stupid enough to actually go to war. So I I joined the military never expecting to go to war.
0: So, in, in in that case, then as an extension of that, you never. So, when you were going through survival, escape, resistance, <coughs> evasion, training, the you know the RAF equivalent of Siri, um, were, were you also looking at that as a sort of a, a, a sort of a, a gaming experience rather than you know I really need to sit and absorb this stuff because one day I might use it.
1: No, you do immerse yourself in the reality, and the military is very good in that. You know, uh, it's in the scenarios, the contingency planning, the acquiring knowledge you know it they make it as real as possible to make sure that you understand it is for real and you do gain skills and you do apply those skills because i have applied those skills in reality you know uh there are things that uh work there were things that don't work there were things that were dated because it's all you know you you only trained for the last war in in reality so um no you do you immerse yourself in the reality and try and apply it for real but I'm saying behind that, did I ever really expect to go to war? No, because when I joined, and in the 80s, war was, certainly when you're on Tornado, which was the nuclear capability aircraft, is war was the end of the world.
0: Hmm. So so there was a... Mm-hmm. <clears throat> A conventional mission for you, wasn't there? But that was the same sort of scenario, wasn't it? It was the sort of fold folder gap. Um, you know, sort of East Germany comes across the well, Russia comes across the, the border of, of East Germany, um, but uh, no nuclear, no tactical nuclear weapons are used, it's conventional munitions. Um is that correct?
1: Uh, how all these wars were right, in exercise we had something called Tacovile, so and it's basically to test the station. And you've got 5,000 people on station and with the four squadrons to test the state, it's war readiness. So it was all taken very seriously. So about two weeks before uh, an excise, you'd get excise, excise on signals because you get signals coming through anyway of real stuff coming through, of intelligence, all that sort of stuff, because it is, a, you know, military. It has to be absolutely up with the latest level of intelligence to be able to negate threats and predict threats. And you'd have excise, excise, and you'd get, oh, you know, I don't know, terrorists have taken over the Moldavian embassy in Mogadishu for the sake of argument that's I don't know why those two countries came up but accept the premise you know and then you get another thing and another thing and it's basically to show that these things don't happen out the blue it's sort of an evolution of events it's almost like Sarajevo and the first world war and and you know non-linear dynamics working out that sends ends up in the first world war so you get all these the scenario that builds are so you getting excised there you go so two weeks prior is to sort of say and then you'd get Oh, the the Russians have just done this, Well, the so- Warsaw Pact have just done this, or oh, they're, they're building, they're doing an excise, but the newspapers say excise, just like uh, Putin did uh, prior to invading Ukraine. So that's, that's where it's frightening when this whole recent uh, stuff in Ukraine started is because it virtually followed the playbook that we've been working on for 30 years. You know, I've, I've been out of the military for twenty years, twenty five years, and it uh, it it virtually followed that playbook. Small instance, small justifications to then movement of the shooter to an exercise into. Oh my God, he's now invading, mm. um, and then the evolution of uh, the evolution was the looking at the Soviet bloc at the time had so many tanks that they would overrun us, and you get past a point where. They used a nuclear tactical nuclear weapon. We responded, and you have tactical nuclear exchange to them. Uh, then into full armageddon, uh, and that was the evolution of uh, the attack of our scenario. But interesting enough, when we launched, we had the end of uh, end of uh, an exercise, the um, the five day exercise. Uh, Families used to watch all the tornadoes take off, 75, 80 of them, all ta- all radio silent, all just <coughs> all 80 of us all going off to fly east and drop our alleged nukes, practice, obviously no nukes on board, but just to practice the launch. Do you know, we? Uh, then the end of the exercise was called, everyone returned, went, went to the park. We never did a single practice after. We didn't practice war after the launch. Mm-hmm. No, because, well... I was in ger- two German bases; those would have been charcoal, yeah. you know. Uh, so uh, I think that shows you that how the world thought. We never practiced anything after the nuclear launch.
0: So, so what was the impact then of learning about uh, Hussein's invasion of Kuwait in August of 1990? And then, because you, so you were, um, was it Larbrook or Gutterscholl? You were 15 Squadron, weren't you?
1: We were at Larbruck. Larbrook. Larbrook. Uh, and yes, uh, suddenly news that uh, Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait. And virtually within a day or so, it was you're going to war. I mean, I was recalled. We were on a flight um, in Germany, and it was kayak formation return on guard, kayak formation return to base, kayak formation return to base. Now, on guard, that was the recall for nuclear arm again. And you went, shit. Now, you're intelligent enough to go, well, there's been nothing. You know, things don't just happen like that. So there's been none of this lead up of anything at all. Oh, my God. Flew back, put the jets on the ground, wandered in the squadron. Fly commander says Kuwait's been invaded. Uh, We're going to war tomorrow. Shit. And that was suddenly the whole pace of life. Now, we didn't. It was a couple of months before uh, the squadron left. But you go, suddenly you go, where the hell's kuwait mm-hmm. none of them, you know where was kuwait who knew where kuwait was before the first gulf war so uh these uh, and then you said we don't have any maps of kuwait we had no maps so we literally uh, we had a, a color photocopy we, we multi-page color photocopied the times atlas big enough to make a wall diagram to have a map of kuwait Wow. And then slowly but surely, all the signals started, came in, where they were, what they were, that was then put all the the army units and the missile sites and you build the intelligence pictures. We waited for the match to come through, which is quite interesting when you fly in the desert. They come through, they all look like sandpaper. Um, <laughs> I mean, um, you know, the jets get painted pink. I mean, all those sorts as you start to evolve to go to war.
0: As, as part of your, I mean, I'm asking leading questions, but but as part of your, as part of this experience, then, are you now starting to think a bit more about things like escape and evasion, the possibility of being shot down? Are you frightened? Um, what, what, and how do you deal with those things that are then going through your mind? Or, or are you just compartmentalized and you're just doing the job?
1: A mix of all of it. Uh, you're not frightened, actually. There's, it's almost like, however uh, distasteful in some ways it may sound, uh, everyone was fighting to be involved. It's like being in the biggest project in your company. You don't want to be in the sideline, you know, uh, or it's the scoop story in the newspaper. You don't want to be doing, you know, uh, births and deaths when your mate's doing the biggest story in history, you know. Uh, so that's no different in the military. Uh, everyone's training suddenly. So many of the rules are removed, um, and literally, you know, we were we went from our uh, rules back then were not below two fifty feet, not above four fifty knots overland in the UK, and for no formation bigger than four aircraft. Uh, we got to a stage where we were cleared down to fifty feet above ground level at full war speeds. So that's 600 knots plus in uh, up to eight to 10 aircraft, 12 aircraft over the whole of the UK. And interesting enough, because everyone, there was a sense in the public, there wasn't a single noise complaint. Wow. Fascinating. So we were literally flying at treetop levels and sorry, a fully laden tornado because we we're flying in warfare because you have to get used to the way, you know, you 30 tonnes, doing 600 knots at 50 feet above you. You know, not a single noise can play. Uh, We You're suddenly going over ranges to do electronic warfare. How does the aircraft work uh, to negate missiles? You really do, although you've learned all this stuff, you actually do go, you start going, I want to know more about that missile system. You know, what hurries the bloom? How do I act? What's this? You become far more definitive in how you're doing it for real and you go from i was on 15 20 hours a month you're up to 45 to 60 hours a month you're suddenly doing right we you know we oh air to air refueling now germany squadrons didn't do air to air refueling because our targets were there in rain suddenly right that was it you know that was the thing right you know kuwait's been invaded we're going to air to air refuel to kuwait uh never air to air refueled before right doesn't matter we got a brief and half an hour's time after the brief you get airborne if you get in the basket you're qualified air to air refueling we're going to air to air refuel to go to Kuwait to go to war tomorrow Shit. and so that is the pace of life doubles trebles uh it's consuming it's overwhelmingly exciting it's very real um yes you get the briefs on siri but or conduct after capture but we've all done that most air crew have done that already and you reaffirm uh what you're going to do and you work out and there's a whole load of tactics and strategies that we're meant to follow um <clears throat> but we weren't going there to lose you know how very rapidly and when we went out there if you see american power in reality they have more aircraft on one air base than we have in our entire air force it is overwhelming american power so we weren't going there to expecting to lose.
0: can you talk a little this is not this is a bit of a, a sort of a, a rabbit hole which we try not i try not to go down but i'm curious because i'm interested in in your thoughts on it but if I remember correctly, it was Pablo Mason was the, the squadron boss?
1: No, Pablo Mason was a formation leader, my formation leader. Okay. All the right. squadron boss was John uh, Broadbent, and then you have, he led one formation. We had three formations, one led by Gordon Buckley, one led by John Broadbent, and one led by uh, Pablo Mason.
0: Okay. I was curious to understand what, what the squadron leadership was like then at that point. I mean, as I said, it's a, it's a, it's not the main story, it's not the main purpose of this conversation, but I'm you know, I'm curious to know how how you felt the leadership was, and um, uh, and what your experience of it was.
1: What they found out when the, immediately after the Gulf was uh, uh, initiated, and we needed to send a squadron, they sent out they sent out the most experienced guys, so all four ship leads and qualified weapons instructors, QIs, which are the highest ranking on a squadron in terms of skill level, pilot level, and they sent a squadron of those out. Funny enough, they found that didn't work very well because you send a whole bunch of chiefs and they all argue with each other and they don't work together. So funny enough, squadrons work. So they, there was one of the comments where you said we literally had sent a generation of all our uh, weapon which are QYs, out to the Gulf. And I think one famous comment was uh, an air marshal. I don't know who said it said that is that is our entire corporate knowledge of how to apply air power. Uh, best you bring them back and send out some cannon fodder. <laughs> I think that was the comment. Uh, and do I find that offensive? No, he's bang on right. Wars don't last forever. And you could literally, you could have uh, wasted the that level of knowledge in the Air Force. So I don't have a problem with that. So they said, cannon fodder, because uh, in two styles. So how a squadron works out, you'd have the squadron commander, you have two flight commanders. And <coughs> and we tend to have, we'd have another senior squadron leader. And yet we had three four ships, so 12 aircraft in total, three four ship made of constituted crews. And uh, normally on a squadron, you'd have the four ship leads who can lead any size formation. You have pairs leads who lead another aircraft and then you have, and others. Though most people can lead all of them, but you're given those qualifications as you get more experienced. And so they sent out de facto squadrons as they were designed exactly that way where you had the leadership of the squadron which tends to be a squadron commander and two flight commanders all of whom flew on their squadrons you know or flew their um, formations and that's how we fought the war uh, and you have the four ship lead who lead the four ships you have the pairs who lead each pair down and you have the other people who are you know who are in each pair so uh and that worked extremely well and our squadron uh I think everyone would say this. Uh, we were very blessed. Our squadron worked extremely well from my perspective. Um, as you develop the tactics, suddenly what used to be the tactics, of, well, we'll go through, do this, that, the other. What happens when you go to war, you go, hang around. We're not going to do that because you go through, they haven't woken up. The second guy goes through, they've all woken up and got their guns out. And by the time I go through, I'm getting shot to shit. You know, let's not do that. Um because suddenly, and, but everyone's opened those conversations. It's really, you know, the tactics that you've flown and used, you go, is this real? You know, because now this is proper real. They're firing real guns and real missiles. And uh, how do we negate that threat? So it, it very much was uh, an evolution. They give you weapons you haven't flown before. They suddenly gave us things like 2250 litre tanks, which are big tanks, which means you can do the range uh, to fly the distances uh normally that would hadn't been through the test pilots but they just gave us big chance say get a couple of experienced pilots to fly them see whether they work if they work you can clear it with them so you get uh there was a whole load of stuff where the usual protocols didn't have time to change them and they say make a sensible decision determine your own tactics we had to do close formation at night squadrons did different methodologies we had no formation lights to do close formation at night Our squad decided to do line of stone, which was off the glow of the engine. So we were five feet down, five feet back or so. You could feel the engine uh, wash on the the fin, which means you're right down. But we did it on the glow of the engines, which were just there at night, sometimes going through clouds. And the leader said if they went below 80 percent on power, the glow would disappear. And you go, you're doing 400 knots or what have you. Uh, in close formation. Uh, You basically, that's what you paid to do in the military. There's no perfect answer. Now the rules are removed and you've allowed to determine your own risk profile. You've been trained to make those judgments in risk and you determine what's sensible and what's not sensible. Um, And basically your brief is win. And that is one unbelievably exciting Uh, and engaging and intelligent, but also at the same time, you would be surprised how everyone going, we were allowed to go down to, we normally, military works on 10 to the minus three. So uh, easiest argument, one in 10,000 chance by dropping a bomb, the bomb will frag you. So that's 10 to the minus three. We are allowed to go down to 10 to the minus two. So one in a thousand chance that you're going to crash into each other or, or the bomb will Frag your own aircraft because a piece of something will do that. Uh, Ask one, determine, look, war's dangerous enough. Why why make it more risky? So we stayed at 10 to the minus three. But you're allowed to make all those decisions yourself. And uh, so I hope what I'm trying to convey, you have intelligent people having an intelligent debate to best effect uh, the risk they're going to engage in, in a professional sense.
0: So this is as good a time as any, then, just to talk about the low-level tactic uh, as alterna- as an alternative to a medium-altitude tactic, whatever. What Can you describe what the <coughs> rationale, then, for the RAF going in low-level? And it wasn't just the RAF. If you look at the first night of Desert Storm, strike eagles went in low-level, and the, Navy, the US Navy yeah. went in low-level. Yeah. Not Everyone everybody, but, but a up, lot of yeah. people went in low-level. The only people who really didn't were the 117s, and they had the low observability in their favor. But but the Air Force was quicker, the US Air Force was quicker to transition to a medium altitude profile, dive toss and that kind of stuff. Um, the RAF stayed with Lola for, for a little longer. Um, I mean, that's a separate uh, conversation and, you know, sort of tacticians can argue about that forever. But but I'm just curious to know what the conversations were in the squadron then about that low level profile and and going to the 10 to the minus 3 risk factor you talked about. Um, whether that was part of it, part of the conversation, whether or not there was actually even an option for a medium-altitude delivery for you guys against the targets you're going to be going up against. What were the conversations?
1: It's more a contextual argument, wraps it all up in, in many respects. Right. Um, air, air forces, how do you take out a country? Iraq had the most integrated air defense system outside of the Central European Front, which means it has overlapping uh, uh, systems uh, with uh, the ability if some goes down, etc. So how do you take that out? And if I'm going to attack you, sat in your room there, uh, you say, uh, but you're in a concrete bunker, you know, a thousand miles in the center of Iraq uh, and you have a ring of steel around you directly, short range, plus medium range, plus long range missiles uh, from the border onwards. You have long range missile, radars, everything. You're really pretty bloody secure. It's almost impossible to take you out. Aha. But where, where you say the classic uh, phrase, war is deception, which is all round Sanders. If you go, war is deception. Air power is confusion. You're really good when you're, you're very bright, you've been selected, you're well-trained, you've got unbelievable weapon systems. And it, if you looked at it from outside, it's impossible. But what air power does is peel the onion back. So yeah, I want to decrease your decision right down that you have very little idea what's happening. So we go from take out long-range radar so you have less time to make a decision. So this is all about the timelines. From long-range radar, do it this way. Long-range radar, you have less time to make a decision. Then we take out long-range missile systems. Then medium-range missile systems to short-range. So you've basically decreased your ability to make a decision from an hour or so down to minutes. You then send in drones. So the moment you send in a drone, we send in drones uh which have the same uh radar signature you switch on all those radar systems you've kept secret from your missile system you switch it off we have an uh, electronic intelligence aircraft that can pinpoint where they are and send missiles down that so then you start going mm, we're getting attacked because if i switch my radar on people will uh shoot at me and kill me so you start doing procedural switch on switch off where you go switch on the radar have a quick look turn it off change the frequency. Wait a couple of seconds, switch. So you're already down to 50% of your decision. This goes on and on. Uh, we, we jam your, your frequencies. We have chaff and flare. We change formations. We get down to a level whereby a flight of a missile is 40 seconds. You've got 40 seconds to acquire me, or else I put eight tornadoes over the top of you. Each have eight 1,000-pound bombs. So I'm putting 64 1,000-pound bombs, which have a frag zone of 3,000 feet, on top of you in under about about two minutes 20 but that's only five minute slot of 24 hours where you get mirage everything like that now in determining that you if we sent everyone in same way same day you would still be able to use those missile systems so what we do is we have to do 360 degrees you don't know where we're coming from 24 hours, day or night, and you're limited by night because you, most of your systems are visually uh, done, not just radar. And at the time, to send in the biggest threat and you start this campaign are missiles, uh, which require radar uh, because they're far more effective. So if we send in everyone at medium level, the the missiles are the huge threat and guns are not a threat. So we fly... a Guns are a threat up to 16,000 feet. Why? Because the bullets go up and then bullets come back down to earth. So you fly above about 16,000 feet. So then the only threat is missiles. Uh, However, we don't have enough assets to protect medium level aircraft. The Americans do. So we go in across all heights all aspects 360 degrees and low level is below the radar rise and so they can't just go there. coming in medium level high level cruise missiles b-52s mirage i'm doing this deliberately. you say this is an overwhelming confusing where the hell are they coming from what are they doing and we're going in at low level um and then then we were we were going to throw the bombs in our miles onto the target. there was an agreement there was never going to be a low-level sortie during the day because you get handheld missiles and they can see you uh we went in at midnight expected to plan and go the following morning um we came in at midnight and said there was going to we we were going to do a low-level day sortie on the first day of the war and we argued for three hours going that is ridiculous uh we've mitigated you know That risk profile is too high. We've agreed. And they said, no, 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 we've mitigated the risk. It's a dispersed operating base. We argued for three hours. We lost the argument. If you can't take a joke, you shouldn't have joined. Um, And, uh, yeah, we went to war. We got shot down because it was a bad decision to send a tornado. Hell with the fact we got grief. You say you do not send a £25 million and, more importantly, two highly qualified aircrew on a day low-level mission against airfield by changing your mind at the last minute. Uh, We got shot down. There was only one day low-level sortie by a tornado against a target. There were lots of night low-level missions, but then it got to a stage where, having taken out the radar systems and removed the, the missile, much of the missile threat, the major threat then became the gunfire. So everyone popped up after about a week to fly above the bullets because we'd remove that threat. So do you see it's all wrapped up in how how you dismantle a country, where the major threat is, high or low? And as you say, everyone went in low, medium or high. The Americans went to medium level soon enough because they have the assets to protect their packages. The British do not have those aircraft. So we had to wait a little bit longer to allow that risk to decrease that we could then go up and self-support ourselves at medium level. You know, people think we're paid to fly pointy jets. We're not paid to fly pointy jets. I am paid to disrupt, destroy or dismantle uh, the air power of another country, to prevent their air assets uh, attacking our troops or removing our air power. And. That means going into interdiction, air interdiction, which is flying behind the battlefields to take out high value assets to prevent doing that. So it is highly intellectualized, highly intelligent in people who've who've thought this through. There's almost airspace, air traffic control for each of these and the way we apply our weapons in what way and how we attack that not me, this was determining you have to go and learn all this shit. So I'm paid to beat you. I'm not paid to fly an airplane. I'm paid to outthink the very intelligent people on the other side who who have a different political view to us.
0: I think the way that it's normally described, though, is, is in much simpler terms and, and not bringing in um, all the different layers of the onion. So, so typically what you hear as a criticism of the RAF going in low level in the first couple of, well, I don't know if it was the first two weeks or, or I don't know when the they made the transition. About the first week and then the we first popped week. up. Yeah. So, so, so it was that they were slow to respond to the fact that the low level threat was higher than the medium altitude threat. That's the criticism that you hear. And, and it is put in those simplistic terms. Sometimes it's even the case that people say, well, they should never even on the first day or the first night have flown low level because that threat was more substantial than going in and... Uh, dropping a bomb from medium altitude that's that's sometimes what i hear as well so
1: yes maybe i mean the thing was we had jp-233 which was the uh, runway denial weapon which had what about i can't remember the figures uh, 30 runway denial things came out and about 200 per casing of um mindless. um which we're going to use in germany germany to uh, cut up runways so prevent the Soviet bloc using runways to attack us, Um, which was a hell of a beast when you put it on the aircraft. I mean, you know, a tonne of weapons or what have you, huge, uh, or two tonnes or whatever it was, huge. Great big wardrobes on the bottom of the aircraft. Um, They worked in the soil base of uh, uh, Europe in the fact that with the, the clay muddy soil, it created heave. It was meant to create heave, the great big slabs of the runway going up um when you put it in the desert it blew a big hole in the thing but because it's sand underneath it just dispersed and it just had a hole in the runway which made very little difference uh the guys who flew it at night and there were about two to three sorties that happened over the first week uh yeah they all came back terrified because you have to fly straight and level i won't say the how long you have to fly for there were two sticks Uh, a long stick and a short stick. We decided to use a short stick, as everyone did, because no one's going to fly straight level for that long over the most heavily defended targets on the planet, which are airfields. But you've got to fly straight level over an airfield. And everyone just said it was just you went from pitch black in the desert for two and a half hours to two and a half minutes of the most abject terror, with your aircraft completely illuminated with all the gunfire everything to them straight back into pitch black as you flew home saying uh, and you go yeah uh, so some of it was it's like all wars you start off with what you have and try and apply it uh, and you learn pretty fast and you know when aircrew are going up we're not doing that again that's bloody stupid uh, funny enough uh, you end up not doing it again
0: <laughs> T- tell me a little bit about your target, then, uh, JP. You've you've already said it was a dispersed site, it was an airfield, but um, what, what was it? Um, what was the? I mean, do do you, do you even do like a risk assessment, uh, or do you just say here are the threats that are protecting it, and we need to devise some tactics with the QI well, to go and hit no, it? No, of
1: course, no. Of course, you do a risk assessment, but that is military. Everything in military, go on, officer training is crisis crisis training. Every military, every military course is about risk and crisis management it's not called as such but the it is are you a person who can deal with in the pissing rain carrying a concrete block for no apparent reason yes look well done you can go beyond yourself you know can you do this well is it dangerous well how dangerous make a make a judgment call you know i mean that is that is military training through and through uh we're not known for our creativity let's say um so um Yes, the whole thing is what are the risks, what, you know, and you look at the defences. You've got a whole load of standard operating risks that you cover as well, which I won't cover, but it's to do with missiles, uh, all sorts of things like that uh, on both sides and defences in and out. So it's it's all those sorts of things that you determine the levels of risks. And a whole load of what ifs, which are pretty standard when you fly military aircraft. You know, here you are what if my radio got shot to shit? Well, how do I get back without getting shot by my own people? I won't answer those questions, but, but there's a whole load of questions like that where, you know, what if this happens? Okay, what if, I mean, that are you've learned over the years of training because those were. Learned and taught throughout the Cold War, because people have thought about all those sorts of things. Um, uh, the the biggest thing is ident- uh, identification, friend or foe, is effectively the answer overall. How do we know that you're an enemy or uh, uh, blue forces or red forces? Effectively, that that has always been the challenge. When you f- if you fly out that way, how do you come back this way? And that's that's the the complexity. Um, so you do all the risks and then you go on the immediate risk. You've got the general where the armies are. So you plan a route to avoid all the armies or what have you and avoid the, the, the least to create the least risk. So you work out to the target, but you also work back from the target. What is the target? What, what are their defences? there? How are they likely to defend their thing? What are we going to expect? So how you work, you, you, you work to and from the target with two different mindsets. And you work out the risks the whole way.
0: And, and so you're talking it was an airfield, wasn't it? Well,
1: yes, we were attacking Aramala southwest, which is to the southeast of Baghdad, which is a uh, a dispersed operating base. So it wasn't a, a main operating base where they have aircraft, but uh, a dispersed operating base is one that's probably 10, 20 miles away, which you're going to use once we've if the first base is taken out. So in terms of shock and awe, what you do is, Basically, you want to take out all the pieces of concrete there ever existed that the Iraqis couldn't fly their aircraft.
0: <clears throat> did you? Did you feel ready? Uh, and I don't just mean ready as in that mission and the planning that went into it, but ready as a as an as a person, uh, as a man. Yeah,
1: yeah. We were very well trained. We'd been out in the desert for a month and a half. Uh, no, extremely well trained, actually. Um, very ready, um, operationally minded. Uh, no, pretty confident, to be honest. Not overly so. The, how, if you're, when you start at the beginning, I had my, I suppose my moment of real realisation on the night of a mission, we'd just updated all the plans, on the morning of the mission, just updated all the plans and walked off to breakfast. There was a, uh, a marquee where there was breakfast, and just walking out it was only you know 50 meters to the tent i just kind of stopped and, went, <sighs> and carried on walking and that was a realization this is this is real this is here this is war and uh, but uh your only concern is to make sure you do everything right and not let anybody else down and make sure you do your job right. But then the moment you start into the role where you go out to the aircraft, take your all the pins off the aircraft to do all the things, uh, it is a trained response. And that doesn't mean you become, a, a, you know, an immoral robot. What you're saying is a trained response, you know, abolish fever, season It is flying. It's no different to what you've done every day of your career. To date, a sequence of events—you know—to to do the takeoff, everything uh, is a sequence of events. And uh, the only time it ever gets different, really, is uh, actually the only time it got different to normal training was coming off target when we were getting shot at. Up until then, we hadn't been shot at. You know, we went in, we lofted which is a number of miles out from Target, well, you go up. We have flown over lots of bases, both out in the desert and in Europe, where you fly up and you do a loft attack and they and, and you come back and you've got other aircraft who try and attack you. I've done that hundreds of times in my career. So you go, it is no different to training. The difference is when we started getting shot at, when we started coming back, well, that, that was very different. The other guys will have flown out. Yes, there's a perception it's real in this war, but they flew back. They weren't shot at.
0: Thanks for tuning in to 10% True. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe. And if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks and take care.